My name is James Metzger. I'm the lead pastor at Renaissance Bible Church, and I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning into our podcast. At Ren, we really believe that God's Word is living and active, that God still uses it to form and shape and change lives uh, for all of eternity. And so our prayer uh, for you is that God might use uh, these words to point you and others to Jesus. May God bless you in your journey. Uh, we have a tradition at my house where uh, there are times when we'll sit down at the kitchen table for dinner and we will ask what we like to call the question of the day. The question of the day usually comes from a little group of questions that we have. We kind of rifle uh, through them and they can be completely off the wall or random, but they're always great conversation starters. And so I wanted uh, to ask you this morning a question of the day. And the question is this, if you could ask God for one thing, uh, what would it be and why? If you could ask God for one thing, what would it be and why? Now, I want to warn you before you think of that thing that I'm actually going to ask you to share that thing with the person next to you. And so if you want to be uber spiritual about it, now's your time. If you were just thinking about like asking for more wishes or lots of money or something like that, you just keep that to yourself. Uh, but I'm going to ask you now, if you thought about it for a moment, if you could ask God for one thing, what would it be and why? Share uh, that thing maybe with your neighbor, someone sitting next to you. If you're new this morning and this is creeping you out, it's going to be okay. It'll all be over soon. How many of you are going to start praying for the person sitting next to you this morning? You're like, I didn't, I didn't know. I'm going to put that on my prayer list. So one day the disciples are having a conversation with Jesus, and they basically kind of ask Jesus this, this off-the-wall, unsuspecting question. They come up to Jesus, and they ask him, hey, will you do for us whatever we ask? Right, which is a great question when you think about it. I mean, what, what are they going to ask? We, we learn from our story this morning that what the disciples ask for is a place of uh, position and prominence and power, but what Jesus uh, calls them to, and the same thing that he calls us to, is a posture of service. Jesus is going to call his disciples as he is going to call us uh, to serve, and he's going to do it in the most unsuspecting way. He does it in Mark chapter 10, and so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me there to Mark uh, chapter 10, Mark uh, chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. Before we walk through this passage together, I want uh, you to know that this is one of three instances in the gospel of Mark where uh, Jesus has spoken to his disciples about the passion uh, account. The passion account is uh, when Jesus foretells of his impending suffering. It happens once in Mark uh, chapter 8. I don't know if you remember that time or not, but Jesus tells his disciples what's going to happen, and, and Peter kind of tries to rebuke Jesus, and then Jesus rebukes Peter. They, they don't get it. In Mark chapter 9, there's another account of uh, Jesus' impending suffering of uh, his death, and the disciples don't exactly know what to do with it, and so they start debating about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And then uh, we're going to notice how the disciples respond here in Mark chapter 10. But just right before this passage, beginning in Mark 10.35, Jesus foretold of his impending death. And so 
Immediately following, this is the conversation that takes place. And and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Right, so just think for a moment about what's just taken place. Jesus uh, tells his disciples that he is going uh, to suffer uh, and die. And the disciples respond by asking for box seats uh, in the owner's suite. <laughs> right, which comes across as a little bit strange to me. I don't know if it strikes you as odd, but it, it does to me. Disciples just have this blanket statement, teacher, will you do for us whatever we ask? And he says, what do you ask? And they say, we want to sit next to you, one at your right and one at your left. This was known as a position of prominence and a position of power. If you uh, walk down the street with someone who was influential, a politician or someone who was powerful in the culture, if you were on their right or on their left, then you, I mean, you had front row seats. Uh, You were kind of a big deal. It's in some ways like that nowadays. When you look at someone who is famous or someone who is well-known, a superstar, an athlete, a a singer, you look at the people who surround them, who they run with, and if if they're running with them, then you know that that person is pretty special. Well, here the disciples uh, say to Jesus, we want to sit at your right and at your left. Uh, The disciples here are very ambitious with their request of Jesus. Very ambitious. And it should be noted that ambition in and of itself um, is not bad. Ambition in and of itself is not bad. I think Jesus was one of the most ambitious people uh, ever to walk the planet. I mean, Jesus came with a purpose. He said, I've come to seek and save the lost. He was sent out on mission. That's pretty ambitious. Um, Jesus spoke to his disciples before he went back into heaven and said, I want you to go and make disciples like of the world. Well, that's ambitious. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the, when the Spirit comes, it says you will receive power when the Spirit uh, comes upon you. And, and there's instructions in where you are going to be witnesses for the Lord. And it basically says that you're going to be witnesses in your neighborhood and in your city and in your state and in your country. You're going to go to the uttermost parts of the world representing me. That's, that's pretty ambitious. So ambition in and of itself is not wrong, but selfish ambition can take you to dark places. Right? Selfish ambition, the kind of ambition that says, I, I want my voice to be heard. I want to be known. I want to have a platform. I want people to follow me. I want to advance my cause. That's selfish Ambition, And I think when the disciples asked this question, uh, it, it came out of a heart, at least in part, of selfish ambition because they wanted a place next to Jesus more than they wanted the person of Jesus. I, I think they wanted some of the benefits of being associated with Jesus, but I don't know if they, if they really wanted Jesus. They wanted a place of prominence and a place of 
of power. They wanted to be a part of the the in crowd or uh, the inner circle. When I read this, I thought of author C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called Weight of Glory. Uh, And in that book, Weight of Glory, he he talks about what uh, he calls the inner ring. He suggests that the the world basically operates on on two distinct systems. Uh, One of the systems that the world operates on, or one of the systems that the the world uses, is very uh, clearly defined. There is a, a rule book of titles. Right? So you go to work and you come across your, your manager or your supervisor or uh, the VP or the president, and there is, there is a clear chain of command. And C.S. Lewis argues that oftentimes uh, we think that the world is just run on this system, but there's another system, a parallel system, uh, working alongside of it, filled with unwritten rules. Um, and, and, and when you move into spaces like that, you, you realize that uh, it's not always the person with the title uh, that has the influence or uh, the power. Right? Sometimes you can come into a place and you quickly realize that, that this charismatic person over here or over here or over here, uh, even though they don't necessarily have the title, uh, they seem to be in the inner ring. And have you ever found that to be true? Whether, at, whether it's at, at work or whether it's in your neighborhood or whether it's in church. Right? It seems like certain people know some things that not other people know. Right? And so sometimes we can live life like we're, we're trying to find our way into what C.S. Lewis calls the inner ring. I couldn't help but think about that when I, I read of the disciples' request. They're like, we, we want to be a part of the in crowd. Like, we want to be on the inner circle. We want to be uh, close to you, not so that we can just be close to you, but so that we can have a place of power and prominence. You ever find yourself uh, wanting a a position or wanting power uh, more than simply wanting Jesus? Maybe you think to yourself, well, how... I mean, how do I know that? I mean, how do I know that I, I, I just want a position? How do I know that I just want power more than I want Jesus? Well, how um, do you respond? How do I respond when uh, we have neither? Like when we're not in a position of influence, when we don't have a position of power, when people aren't coming to us, when we feel like we're on the outside looking in, when things are happening that we're not a part of, are we okay with it? Are we okay with it? How do we respond when the the benefits of Jesus uh, begin to be stripped away? Because it it seems like sometimes we paint this picture of following Jesus as if, if we follow Jesus, then good things will come our way. Right? Things will basically play out the way that we want them to play out. The things that we want to happen will happen. The things that we don't want to happen won't happen. But what happens when when our dreams and our aspirations for our life are kind of turned on its head? Like, like how do we respond to the God that created us? How do we respond to Jesus 
in those moments, I think how we answer that question will be telling to decide whether or not we want the kickbacks or the benefits of Jesus or we just want Jesus. What Jesus teaches his disciples when they make uh, this request is that the pursuit of greatness does not involve power and prestige, uh, but uh, traveling the pathway of suffering. The pursuit of greatness, Jesus teaches his disciples, uh, is not a pathway that involves power and prestige, but it is a pathway of suffering. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 38, uh, you do not know what you are asking. Do you ever want something before and long for something before and, and you look back years later and think to yourself, I can't, I can't believe I wanted that. I can't believe I was asking for that. Because right? our, our sight is, is, is so uh, blurred uh, from, from God's plan for us oftentimes. Like, we don't know what we're asking for. It would be like a, a beginning piano student uh, going to a concert pianist and going, hey, I want to play with you, like you. And the concert pianist goes, yeah, but do you, do you know what it takes? Do you know what it takes? Do you understand what you're signing up for? Like, you, you can't practice for 10 minutes a day once a month. Right? You have to spend hours and hours and hours honing your craft. It would be like going up to an athlete and being like, I want to play ball like you. I want to shoot like you or hit like you or run like you. And the athlete goes, but do you, do you know what you're asking? Do you, do you really want that? The disciples ask for a place of power and prestige before Jesus, and he responds and says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Verse 39, and they said to him, we are able. <laughs> I love that. Jesus is, is basically communicating to them, do you, do you know that I am going to suffer? Do you know that the way of, of, of Christ is, is a difficult road? It's hard. It's not easy. And the disciples go, yep, we're in. Sign us up. Jesus said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left uh, is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been uh, prepared. So Jesus, in essence, tells his disciples who want this position of power and significance, listen, you, you don't know what you're asking for. Uh, I am going to suffer. Are you ready to suffer? And the disciples go, yes, we are. And Jesus says, well, there, there will be a time uh, when you will suffer. Like, but the, the seating arrangements in heaven, that's not my call. Right? That is for my Father. And so he, he tells the disciples and reminds uh, the, the two disciples that, uh, that their, their path is going to be a difficult path. Um, that the road that they travel will be difficult. It will be hard. It will uh, not be easy. It will not be a life uh, moving downhill with the wind at your back. And yet oftentimes, um, I find um, that the very things that God uses to form and shape us, the times uh, that are difficult, the times that are hard, the times when uh, we feel pressed, are the very moments uh, that I want to avoid. I want to avoid those. I, I don't love the, uh, the, the process of, 
of God forming and shaping me. And yet, what if the very events you want to avoid are the very events that God wants to use to form and shape you to look and act and think like Jesus? I'm like, what if the very things that we spend our lives trying to avoid are the very tools that God wants to use in our hearts to form and shape us uh, to be like Jesus? Last week, I was speaking with a gentleman who has a ministry in one of the worst parts of Charlotte. Uh, and he mentioned in passing to me that his week had been challenging. And so I, I said to him, is there anything that you need? Is there anything that you need? And this is what his response to me was. Uh, he said, James, uh, he said, I do not need a thing. He said, I have nothing but Jesus. I have nothing but Jesus. And he is all that I need. And then he said, James, I live life uh, like I am dying. I live like life like I am dying. And when he said that, it, 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 like it did not come across to me as if he was um, going out of his way to be super spiritual. It didn't seem uh, to me that he was simply uh, just saying a line, right? Be- because he knew it was the right thing to say. There was this part of me that thought to myself, he actually believes those words. And if, if you know his story and you know his life, you see how it has played out in his heart and in his ministry. When he says he has nothing and he owns nothing, he means that he has nothing. Right? Every day, every day he deals with hardship. Every day. And he said to me, James, it has been a process for God to bring me to this place. It has been a process for God to strip away those things that I hold on to in my life. I heard his story and I thought uh, to myself, like, I, I, I want to be there. Like, there's this part of me that quite honestly hears that and I'm like, like, I, I want to be able to say those words with authenticity. Like, I don't want it to be a spiritual line. I want to be able to speak that knowing that it is true. But I'm not super excited about the process of actually getting there. Like, I don't want to have to go through the hard work where God molds me and forms me and shapes me so that's produced in my heart. Like, I, like I want my life to be marked by grace. I just really don't want to have to extend it a whole lot. I want to be the kind of person that freely offers forgiveness, but I really don't want there to be too many situations where I have to extend it. Like, I want to be able to thoughtfully walk through people well as they suffer, but I don't want to have to suffer. I want to teach people what it looks like to deal with disappointment in a godly way, but I really don't want to be disappointed. I want people to know that failure is a great educator. I just don't want to attend the school. So there's this, this part here and here where I go, I, I want this, whatever this looks like over here. 
This kind of maturity and godliness that says, I have nothing but Jesus. I live every day like I'm dying, and I go, I want that, but I don't think I want to experience everything that brings me to the point where I can authentically say that. And yet we know from the Gospels, we know from the life and the ministry of Jesus that that hardship and suffering and difficulties and challenges are a part of God forming and shaping us into the image of his Son. So two disciples tell Jesus one day, hey, we would like a place of prominence and power um, next to you. And And he says to them, in essence, that the place of greatness uh, is a posture of service. And does this sound, sound familiar? The, these, these verses, and when, this is verse 41 of Mark chapter 10, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John, because James and John are, they're kind of going rogue here. Right? They're, they're going rogue, and the other disciples find out about it. It's amazing that Peter wasn't here to me. But it says, and, James, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Right? And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so Jesus is teaching his disciples that the way of following me is, is difficult. Like it, it involves suffering. And then he reminds his disciples again about what true greatness looks like. A true greatness is not position. It's not power. It is a posture of service. It's a posture of service. There is the thought in the day, and quite honestly, the thought in our day is that uh, the more important you are, the more people serve you. Right? The more influential you are, the more powerful you are, the, the better title that you have, uh, the more people serve you. I've thought about this uh, before when I've had the opportunity to, to travel uh, to different places around the world on missions trips. I remember in Colombia, we went to uh, this, this conference with uh, persecuted pastors through uh, a really cool ministry, and they would gather together, and we would minister to uh, these, these pastors for a couple days and speak, and we would pray for them and come alongside of them. And I remember a feeling, it, it was just a little bit awkward when I showed up, and they, they brought me to the front row of this very large tent, and they gave me cold bottled water. And they pointed to my seat and like, this is, this is your seat. This is your place. And I just kept on thinking like, like I'm nobody. I'm nobody. And yet they, they gave me their very best. Right? Their very best. At the end of the conference, we did a, a Q&A with the pastors, and they asked us, what's the most difficult thing that you have had to face in ministry? <laughs> right? Like, these are people whose family members have, have been murdered for the cause of Christ. These are, are, are men who have lost everything, lost everything to plant a little church in their community. Uh, these are men and women whose sons and daughters 
uh, are persecuted sometimes on a regular basis. And they're going, hey, share with us the most difficult challenge that you have had in ministry. And I'm like, <clears throat> next question. Like, what am I supposed to share in that moment? But yet they, they treat you like you're someone significant and you're someone special. And, and culturally, we do this, right? I mean, when, when someone comes into town who's of importance, we, we shower them with blessing. We communicate to them, you're, you're important, you're a, you're a big deal. And if you're not careful, there can be this mindset that we have where we go, well, we've, we've kind of arrived. And so as a people, we have expectations. We want to be treated a certain way. We want to be thought of a certain way. The thought of the day was that the more important you are, the more people serve you. That's why it says in in verse 42, and Jesus called them and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. In other words, they they remind people that they're in charge. Their great ones exercise authority over them. He says in verse 33, But it shall not be so among you. It should not be so among you. Jesus' leadership model is vastly different than the world's. And when he says that it will not be so among you, he's not talking about a a way of striving in life um, so that you will attain this or experience it. He's just saying, as a follower of me, as a follower of Christ, this is what this is how we operate. This is what we do. We we look around on Sunday morning and we have a mentality and mindset that says, I'm I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. It's not, it's not about me. And so when I walk down the halls or when I look out on Sunday morning or when I interact and rub shoulders with the people who call this place home, we have a mindset that says, how can I come alongside this person and serve them? Right? The, the picture here of, of a servant uh, was one who was a, a table waiter or a household servant. In other words, in many ways, they were on the the bottom of the totem pole. They weren't a big deal. Jesus is like, if you want to be great in my kingdom, if you want to be somebody, be a nobody. And serve the people around you. Uh, This kind of service that Jesus is talking about is the kind of service where we serve Jesus because it is a privilege to serve him. It is a joy to serve him. It's not a beat down to serve him. Right? It's not some transactional chore that we do. It's not some task that just kind of needs to be accomplished. And so let's figure out who's going to do it. It's not a necessary evil. It's not something that we do because nobody else will do it. Like we don't stand up on Sunday morning and go, well, we, got, we need someone to work slides in the back. Look at Cody over there. Look at how sad he is. Be sad, Chris, right? Because we, we just need someone to push the buttons. I'll wait. I'll wait. Who wants to push the buttons? No, we don't. We don't view service. That, that's not the kind of service that God calls us to. We say we, we, need, we need someone who's going to facilitate 
worship. We need someone who is going to help communicate the truth of God's word for God's people uh, to see and respond in worship. Uh, Service, regardless of what we do, um, is not something we do out of duty, but out of delight. It is a privilege. You you have the privilege uh, to communicate uh, the truth of God's word and facilitate God's people in worship. You, You have the privilege to invest and pour gospel truth into the lives of children. You have the the privilege of creating a space that serves as a sanctuary for God's people. It is a a joy. If it is a duty, if it's a duty, if you're just kind of grin and bear it, you will not last. You won't last. If you're doing it for me, because someone guilted you into it, if you're doing it because, well, no one else is going to do it, you will not last. But, but, man, if if you have a picture of the goodness and the graciousness of the God who made you and knows you and loves you. And, and if you serve out of a heart of worship, you will experience joy. So Renaissance, what if, what if we, you and me, what if we were marked by this kind of of service? What if we saw what we do is a great privilege? What if we saw what we do uh, as a great joy? What if we saw what uh, we did is not duty, but delight? Uh, Jesus tells you if we serve in that sort of way, uh, we will be great. And I want us to be great. I want us to be this kind of great. Here's the beautiful thing, that Jesus not only calls us to this kind of sacrificial service, but he, he does it by serving us. Jesus does not only call us to this kind of service, but, but he shows and demonstrates what that looks like by serving us. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 is like the key verse in the gospel of Mark. Like in many ways, everything is leading up to this. Mark chapters 1 through 8 have been asking the question, who is Jesus? Right? And, and we see in Mark 8, 9, and 10 that Jesus is God's Son. He's the Savior of the world. He's come to redeem His people. It says in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life is a ransom for Many. Jesus is not like a football coach who stands on the sidelines and barks out orders and instructions to the players. Right? He doesn't ride around in the golf cart with his whistle, barking out orders for people to do. Now Jesus came and rolled up his sleeves. Right? He got on his knees. Right? And he served. Us. This is what it says in Mark 
10.45, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what theologians call the great exchange. Right? That, that we exchange our sinfulness, um, our, our brokenness for the righteousness and the goodness of Jesus. That word ransom in Mark 10.45 means uh, to deliver by purchase. Right? It has the idea of, of payment being made. Right? And, the, and the picture here is that, that Jesus bought us. In other words, he came into humanity and he said, you are mine. You are mine. You are mine. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus, God's Son, who was fully God and fully man, came and lived a perfect life and died a sinner's death. He paid a ransom. He delivered us uh, from the penalty of our sin. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Jesus met us in our broken state. He came down in the midst of of our filth and our sinfulness, and he said, you are mine. You're mine. When you know that, not just here, but when you know that here, that stirs in our hearts a longing and a love for him, and it frees us uh, to serve others. Jesus set us free from the debt we owed and could never pay back. He served us. He served us by satisfying God's wrath in his justice. He served us, and so as a people, uh, we respond uh, in joyful service to him and others. We sing, guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Man, hallelujah. What a savior. It's my prayer, Renaissance, that, uh, that you and I uh, would know that savior this morning. Uh, that, that we would be so stirred in our affections uh, for the work of Christ in our hearts and in our lives, uh, that we would seek not a position of power and prominence, but that we would take a posture of service and we would gladly serve others as Jesus has served us. Would you pray with me? Father God, we thank you so much for the good work of Jesus on uh, the cross uh, for us. Lord, we thank you that we have a Savior and who, who came and not only set an example for us, but was a substitute for us. Lord, I pray that we would respond in joyful service uh, to you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would stir in our hearts a longing and a desire to uh, respond to you by serving you and your people uh, with glad and sincere hearts. Uh, Lord, help us to do so for your name's sake. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.